Welcome to the Revolution of Interdependence podcast. My name is Will Sampson. I'm a social scientist who guides executives and companies to new levels of growth. If you want to improve your life all by yourself, look, that's your business. But if you want help from others, that's our business. And that's what this podcast is all about, helping each other succeed. We do that by inviting people into a growing revolution of interdependence. So let's get into today's podcast. Well, welcome everyone to a revolution of interdependence. I am super excited today to be here with Daniel C. from Down Under. Um, And I'll tell you a little bit about Daniel. He has 15 years experience working in senior leadership, strategic consulting roles across Australia. He's a trainer, he's a coach, he's a speaker, um, and he's been in a number of leadership roles, including in the physiotherapy world, health management, in ministry. Um, and Daniel's also the author of Spacemaker, which we're going to get into hopefully in the second half of this interview. Um, but I'm super excited to meet with uh, Daniel today and to bring his voice to each of you. Um, so welcome, Daniel. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on your sh- show, Will. You bet. So we always open with one question because we're we're all about interdependence, which is, can you tell us the story of a person or a group that was the difference maker for you? You can't imagine having gotten where you got in life without that person or group. Yeah, look, I mean, there are so many mentors that I've had in my life. It's, it's hard to think of one, but uh, look, I would actually have to say my wife, Kylie, who really is an amazing person. We are so different in so many ways. I've, I don't know if people are familiar with Clifton Strengths or Gallup Strength Finder, but sure. uh, my top five are her bottom five and vice versa. Oh. <laughs> so we're kind of completely opposite personalities. Right. But, you know, we talk about interdependence and isn't marriage like that. You, you rub off on each other, you rate each other terribly, but I'm focused and she's adaptive and flexible. I'm strategic and she's empathetic and uh, you know, uh, she brings out the parts in me that need to be brought out to be a healthy human and, and hopefully vice versa. So I, I can't imagine being where I am without her in my life for those kind of 20 years. I love that story. That's so great. And so you've had a wealth of experience and I know some of it is around living in community. I know you've had a number of different community experiences. I'd love to hear that part of your journey. Yeah. So look, it probably began when I was 19 years old and I ended up going to Vanuatu as part of a leadership development program with my local church community. And it it was a really good experience. We weren't going there to fix things or help people. We were going there to learn about culture and, and learn what it might look like to see our lives through the lens of another culture. And so I think it was well designed. Uh, And you wouldn't be allowed to do this nowadays because there was uh, myself and another 19 year old kind of child really we were (laughs) sent off into the jungle of this island called Malakula so we were the only white fella on the mountain there were no other adults they didn't speak English it was Bislama so we had to learn the language before we went no electricity no communications I wrote a letter and I received the letter back three weeks later you know so (laughs) that was our supervision but it was an incredible experience living in this jungle village uh, where we hunted for our own food and we lived in a grass tent. It, it was just mm. this life that was so different. And I remember being quite struck by how uh, 
by how beautiful the communal life was and and what it was like to actually live in a village, which I'd never experienced with my, you know, Western kind of secular way of growing up in Australia, which is probably not that different from the States from that worldview yeah. perspective. And, and I remember having a chat with uh, the pastor of the village, and he is the only person who spoke English uh, and went to Australia years ago. And I asked him what he thought of Australia and our culture. And I've always remembered his answer. He said, uh, there were three things. He said, one, uh, everyone smokes, which is really funny because like, I'm like, what? We smoke. And, and he hadn't been to Australia. He hadn't been anywhere out of the tropics. And so what he meant is <sighs> when he breathed, Oh. <laughs> condensation came out of his mouth. So right. <laughs> everyone smoked. Uh, he thought it was weird that people weren't friendly in the streets, so they didn't greet each other, which is probably right. true. Yeah. Uh, and the third thing he said, which always stuck with me, he said that people put little fences around their houses and they must be very scared <laughs> or very or very protective of their stuff. Right. And and it's so different in Vanuatu. People just shared life, you know, and and they were like you said interdependent. And I I walked away with this real really deep conviction that I wanted to live a life without fences in the way that I used to live and that I wanted to have a more permeable life and more interdependent life. And, and so that led us, uh, eventually I got married, you know, not, not at 19, but uh, in my mid twenties, I I lived in share housing. Uh, We intentionally tried to put ourselves in situations where our life was more open, a bit, uh, a life without fences. And, and eventually when I moved to Tasmania, uh, I met a family, another couple who had had similar convictions to me, and we actually bought land and built two houses without fences uh, and designed our space so that neighbors would play on our in our backyard and jump on our trampoline and and where we would open our houses up and create this intentional, I suppose community. Uh, and, and that's you know that's part of my journey to learning what it looks like to live in a slightly different way in this kind of hyper individualized culture that we all surround ourselves in. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful story. What did you, well, let me, uh, so let's start with, the, with this experience um, with the tribe. What did you learn from there um, in terms of um, sort of how to, what, what were you able to take from there? Cause I, I sometimes wonder like there's these sort of idealized settings, not that they're idealized to the people there, <laughs> but then when you leave there and you go like, what, what changed in your spirit? Like, what did you, what did you take away from that? Yeah. And look, I certainly don't want to idealize the village as well. They had their problems. I mean, I was training as a physiotherapy student at the time and I met a lady who said she was in pain. She'd lost lots of weight. And I just, with my limited medical knowledge, I knew she had cancer, but what do you do? You know, so we, we weighed her at the, uh, at the local airport, which was like an hour and a half walk away. And it's just a grass strip with like one scales on, you know, one set of scales on it for the village for the island and and then we weighed her a few weeks later and yes she'd lost lots of weight but basically that was a death sentence and there was a whole lot of superstitious stuff so uh, i suppose i'm not idealizing the culture but at the same time i walked away realizing wow they are happy people and this and there's great joy in simplicity Mm -hmm. i learned to slow down and enjoy silence and solitude which uh, i hadn't ever experienced in a in a in a deep way and i learned to I think I, it led me to be a more reflective person. Uh, I learned to journal. I learned to, to just start to pay attention to my own thoughts rather than just the thoughts around me. Right. Uh, and, and it really impacted my faith uh, as a Christian. It impacted the way I saw church and, 
the way I, I understood what we would call Christendom, which is the, the sense that we do church with particular cultural forms. And, and I started to see that through, uh, because, because the way in which the Vanuatu people did kind of church, some of it was kind of weird. And I'm like, that doesn't fit their culture at all. So that had been imported in. And then I'm like, we, what have we imported in? So there were a lot of changes and shifts that happened in my thinking through that formative kind of few month process. That's fascinating. And you, you liked it enough that you tried community again. So I'd love to hear, because uh, you and I shared in, in conversation before the podcast started, we both have had some experience with some um, intentional thinkers and some people who have, who have really focused on what it means to live out your story, your, your faith story in a community. You did that very particularly. You mentioned it uh, just briefly, but I'd love to hear more about that story, both the good and the, and the sorrowful. Yeah, so look, we met Michael and Julia when we moved to Tasmania and we wanted okay. to connect with this group that were doing life differently around pubs and clubs again through our faith. Uh, but uh, look, they were just an amazing couple and they had one child and we had a child as well, very young. You know, our, our child, I think, was about uh, one years old or less. And, mm-hmm. and we found that uh, we had both, both as different families had been living with other families in share housing. And that was fine when we didn't have kids, but as much as I like to have this ideology that my life is less individualized, I'm still, you know, a a wealthy, educated, middle-class kind of Australian and I need my own space. And it didn't work to raise children with flatmates and without our own space. And so we wanted to find a way to have a life without fences or, or a life that was more communal and yet recognize that. I'm not a villager in Vanuatu and I never grew up that way. And it's just not right. possible for me to really live that way. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to, to sustain this, we, we, we bought land, we built two houses. Uh, Michael was an architect. So that was tremendously helpful. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and we, we created this, uh, these two simple houses together uh, surrounded by neighbors who are actually in housing department units. So they're quite uh, all unemployed and and there's a lot of, challenges socially in that area but then uh, the rest of the street are really wealthy because i only live 12 13 minute bicycle ride from the city and they're doctors and lawyers and politicians so it's this weird ecosystem around my street where you have very wealthy and very poor people all together and we thought what an amazing place to be able to share life together and see if we can somehow be a village in and around our street by opening up our lives and that, is, that has created some beautiful stories. Uh, we've, we've also had some tremendously difficult times. Right. And, but we have been uh, living alongside of each other for 13 years and, uh, and very much see each other as extended family. Our community has you know, grown where others have moved into units and flats near us to be part of our communal life. Uh, we've also had losses. Um, our neighbor died of a heart attack suddenly, the, the person I built land with. So that's transformed our community. And so we're in a new phase. But uh, I suppose through that, we have learned the beauty and the power of shared life uh, and, and the challenges, but I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Yeah. And do you find yourself developing a new set of rituals? What does community life look like for you and for your yeah, community? So it's changed over the years. What's fascinating is we had our honeymoon period, you know, like yeah. you do with a marriage, yeah. you know, the right. first 
the first few years was just a buzz because we finally made this project happen and we got it off the ground. We got some chickens and built a garden together. So it's kind of everyone was happy. Uh, and then it probably by about year five, you know, there was quite a lot of tension and we, we all had more kids. So now we had, I think, six kids on the block between us rather than two. So that's a hard time in life generally. Right. But we also started to realize that uh, just like a, a couple that's not doing well in marriage, you can live in the same house, but not actually share life together. Yeah. And yeah. we found that geography doesn't create a community, actually. Uh, you know, the shared dreams got us so far, but uh, they're Dutch. I'm half Chinese. My wife's uh, an Australian uh, dinky dye. I don't know what you'd call it. Sure. And, yeah. and our yeah. cultures were different. Uh, while we had similar faith beliefs, our expression of what that looked like was different. And and we just started to really have tension, particularly around some interpersonal conflict with some difficult, difficult neighbors who I didn't feel safe around and they wanted to invite into our houses on a on a daily basis. Right. And so that was hard to know how do you navigate inviting a neighbor in where you don't feel that they're safe with your children. And yet the, the people we do community with feel very convicted to invite them into our lives. And, and we, were, we weren't right or wrong. We, we just were missing each other. And, and so to answer your question, what we, <clears throat> what we discovered was that uh, creating predictable patterns became a real game changer for us. Mm. And by that, uh, the thing that saved us, we would have left and it wouldn't have worked, but, but we had a weekly meal every Wednesday night. It go. wasn't a dinner party. It was a rough and ready meal. And I write about this in my book that uh, we, we needed to, we just, whether we wanted to be together or not, there was a, a, a commitment to eat together and to share life and the kids would do plays and they would run around making noise and and we were an extended family because we submitted our calendar and our schedules to the to, to the rhythms of shared life together okay. and 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 look there were some beautiful stories that happened through that time uh, dreams that people had in our community that unlocked our selfishness and helped us to realize we needed to all change in order to make our way through this. So that there's like a spiritual story that helps us and, and the ability to actually navigate conflict in community. We needed uh, the people in our church to come and actually do conflict mediation with us. It got to that point, uh, but, <laughs> right. but walking through that, just like, again, like a marriage when yeah. if you walk through hard times and then end up uh, in a, in that new space, we actually got there and, uh, we kept eating week after week after week and, and something happened in our hearts and our, our character changed. And there came a point where like, we absolutely love each other and, and we've never been closer since. And that led to this beautiful, fruitful period in our community life where uh, just everyone wanted to connect with us because we'd created this pattern and rhythm in this extended family and people could feel it and see it. And it was authentic because we'd gone through the trials of, conflict and suffering together and and got to the other side and so yeah another couple moved in like to the units next door and they entered our dinner circuit and then the neighbors and then another set of neighbors wanted to join in uh different friends joined in and we ended up with what we call big dinner which is it was like 25 sometimes more uh, right. people every wednesday and we needed to buy a shared fridge and so we created a rhythm on a monday once a month right. called big cook where right. we all got together as a community and we would cook together and drink wine and then freeze the meals for the right. next month. Uh, we ended up having fire pit, which we light a fire in our backyards because we wanted to find a space where 
uh, wealthier and less wealthy neighbours could be a community with different beliefs and backgrounds and middle-class houses don't work for that around a table, but lighting a fire in the backyard and eating uh, spuds, you know, potatoes, right. uh, we say, don't bring your wine, don't bring your drugs and we'll just all be a community, you know, right. that, that worked really well. So that became a rhythm. Uh, and then these rhythms ended up multiplying beyond our houses. And we realized that it's not, it's not the geography of living together that actually creates a community. It's the commitment to each other, yeah. the commitment to, to, to regular patterns uh, and, and the spiritual faith-based element behind that. Uh, yeah. And that multiplied to multiple communities where people just happened to live close enough to be in sh a short drive from each other, but they could still create this kind of big dinner pattern yeah. and, and create life and uh, hope in their neighborhoods. And so that's been part of our story. Uh, if that's useful. I love that. No, that's beautiful. And, and I've, I've had some taste of that. So I, I really resonate with that. And I'm struck by, um, you know, it's, I'm struck by the fact that people really want connection. And for you, it was eating together, living near each other, developing some basic rhythms, things that we, it was doing things we already do, just figuring out how to do it together and maybe mm -hmm. staying long enough. Like I heard in your story, like part of this, part of the journey was, no, we're going to stay. It's hard right now, but we're going to stay and you stayed and got to the other side of that where you began to see the fruit from that. Man, yeah, I, I definitely think that's right. It's, it's the commitment to each other yeah. and the, the willingness to, to be vulnerable and honest and walk, walk through conflict if it, if it happens. Hopefully it won't. But if right. you do life closely enough with people, there tends to be some tension points. Uh, yeah, it's right. the predictable patterns. And for us, it was eating a, a weekly meal. Uh, right. We actually, after the conflict period where we struggled with each other, we ended up praying once uh, on a Thursday morning, we pray with each other and that's been there ever since. And I must admit, we often don't pray very much. We, we kind of share our week and then we pray right. at the end going, whoops, we've got five minutes, but, but that's a really good touch point uh, for us. Yeah. And, and this kind of way of the fire pit is a way of us serving in a broader sense. So, so it's like we, we exist outside of ourselves, not just for ourselves. And that's also been really important. Yeah. So there's that kind of in aspect of community, the, the out aspect of being there for neighbors and the up kind of spiritual aspect. And, and those three patterns have really transformed our community. And I, I've seen those patterns being important. Uh, as this idea has multiplied in other communities. Yeah, that's beautiful. You did have to deal with the death of a friend. I'd love to, I'd love to have you reflect on that, um, not to relive the pain, but just I'd love to hear what that meant to do that in community. Yeah, and that's been tremendously, it's been tremendously painful, but also uh, qu quite a testament, I think, to life shared together. And yeah. Uh, you know, I spoke, so, so my, uh, so Michael and Julia, other people I built with and uh, Mick was healthy. You know, he's the architect, but he just fell down and collapsed in August last year and died of a heart attack. We tried to resuscitate him. Uh, then the paramedics tried, but you know, he, he didn't make it. And so we now have, I'm now the only man on the block, you know, and there's, uh, we have two families and right. kids who are navigating life without or for our kids without their uncle and obviously for the neighbor's kids without their dad which is a tremendously hard experience and and 
but you know what i suppose uh, we've we've navigated building land together and we've done life together but actually doing loss together is part of the journey of connectedness i think yeah. and i i asked julia i said you know i actually said i'm speaking on a podcast this is a few weeks ago about sustainable living yeah. and i wondered if she had any perspectives on what it's like to live in community and she right. said you know what that that if i she's just said she couldn't imagine she couldn't imagine going through this type of grief alone and it's the things that are unexpected that uh, she used to feel safe with michael around and and she doesn't feel as safe at night now that it's her and the girls and yet because our family is next door and and we are only not even a phone call away we're just a shout away yeah yeah then um and and we do come in you know when there's challenges or they need immediate help we are there and uh and just practical stuff like helping with the garden helping with feeding chickens but more yeah. so we still eat together twice a week you know and and i think those kind of things have well look she said it, it it's just been tremendously useful and and more so the patterns that we used to have because we built our life around shared patterns and shared life, it has, those patterns have also sustained her. And I can see what she means. You know, it's really, what we've noticed is there are some friends who just don't know what to do because how do you bring up death? And right. they might love our neighbor, but it's really hard to know, do I ask them how they're going? Cause they're clearly not doing well. Do you know, like, we just don't know how to deal with death in Western society. Right. And uh, and yet, because the patterns exist, we can be irreverent on a Thursday morning before we pray because we always have been and, and we can enjoy a messy meal on a Wednesday night because that's what we've always done. And, and so life continues uh, in and through our shared grief. And, I, and I, I can't imagine myself going through this without leaning on another person and leaning on others and having that sense that uh, life is actually shared. It's not, mm -hmm. yeah, that the joy is in the life that's collective, that the togetherness right. of eating and praying and learning and serving together, that's, that's the joy. Uh, and we just happen to be in a tremendously painful season, but we're doing it together. And I think that's beautiful. I'm really thankful for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I know um, you speak against sort of the traditional ideas of success and all that. And, and I know you've talked about um, you've talked a lot about patterns and rhythms. I think that's a good segue into the whole idea of space maker and sort of um, digital Sabbath. And I, there's a lot of concepts there. I'd love to hear you unpack there. I, I, we're short on. I mean, we got about 10 minutes left, but I'd love to hear you unpack the uh, space maker idea, because I think that is so important. I, you know, in my coaching work, so many people are just looking for calm in the midst of this crazy digital storm that they've created around themselves. So talk to us about the idea of space makers and, and, and how that, um, I, what I'd love to hear too, is how your work and community informed that space maker idea and what you put together there. Yeah. So look, my business is called space makers and we started that a decade ago and the heartbeat behind that is even a recognition 10 years ago, I mean, let alone now that yeah. space is a rare commodity, that the thing that we're going to long for in life as leaders, as entrepreneurs, as business people is not more technology or more information. It's actually more time to, uh, to think and rest and, and connect with people in meaningful ways. Uh, and yet, uh, even, even 10 years ago, I, I kind of could for, foresee that without intentional 
patterns and investment and skills, everyday people would lose the space to actually be human. And we would just become this kind of, you know, busy mechanism that, right. that runs to a standstill. And, and I knew I was hungry for space in my life and I knew that others would be as well. Now, fast forward 10 years. And I mean, my book is about how to make space in the digital age. And I spent seven years writing it. And then I published it in the year of COVID you know, with, with some updates right. based on what was happening with the pandemic. But post COVID, oh my goodness, like our whole life has become digital and we have, we're losing aspects of our humanity uh, because we're always online. And actually the spaces that we used to have, even the pauses where we would be at the supermarket and wait in line or when we're on the bus or the train where we would just think our own thoughts and reflect on our own values or, or pay attention to the moment. We're losing all that because we just pull out our phone and, and we're automatically back in the online world. And so the book is definitely not an anti-technology book. My, I wrote it for people like myself who work almost constantly online and I value the online world. I live in this little city and get to coach people in New York. You know, right. the, none of that was possible before the iPhone and before digital tech really kind of right. became normative. So I'm very grateful for technology, but the book goes through a journey where uh, I teach people the relationship between technology and productivity that uh, we need tech to be productive but if you use too much technology, you end up in digital overuse and you right. lose your health and happiness and relationships and, and productivity. Right. Uh, and then, and then I, I help people change their paradigm, their thinking around what tech is and why we relate so deeply to it. Yeah. We move people to the principles, which are like, you know, how do you, what do you want to orientate your life with in the moments when you're not online? And, right. and they're things like silence and solitude and uh, deep relationships uh, rest in a way that's structured and meaningful you know the kind of human pursuits that we're losing without these unplugging habits uh, and then the final part of the book is just super practical because i'm a productivity consultant so it's like right. how do you unplug each day each week each year uh in and around constant overuse right. so that you from a research perspective and an experience perspective you actually experience this deep and rich life in and around your tools and uh and that's that's the passion that i have to help people think differently. And there's a connectedness, interconnectedness component because, well, there's just so much that relates to technology that disconnects right. us, that shapes right. our worldview and that makes us hyper-individualized consumerists and, and unable to see the world from a spiritual perspective because of the material eyes we see the world through. So if you don't rethink technology, you'll never be able to truly live an interconnected life. What do you think people are most afraid of when with the, with the challenges of rethinking technology, with the challenges of finding balance, what do you experience as, as the thing people fear the most um, with, with approaching technology that way? Yeah. What do they fear the most? It's a good question. <laughs> I can only go existential. I still think yeah. we fear death and we don't, and we're not, <laughs> and when, and we're not willing to admit it. And so it right. leads to us anxiously needing to prove ourselves, having to pull ourselves up at the bootstraps, you know, yeah. us having to define ourselves by what we achieve and our successes or our relationships. And, right. and uh, I don't know, that's probably a little bit too big and broad to really help your audience. But, but I, I mean, I think at a very deep level, we, 
are not able to confront the fact that, you know, as um, Oliver Berkman says in his great book, that we have 4,000 weeks. And right. until we can confront that we have 4,000 weeks, which means we are finite, we will never achieve everything, we'll never get yeah. all of our to-dos done. And right. therefore, we need to make very intentional decisions about the life we live and, and what we spend our time on and what we choose not to. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that involves unplugging from technology rather than constantly being online. Right. Well, then, then, then it'll be very, very hard to, to live your own life rather than living by culture's script. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's a very big answer, but hopefully no, that's a great, in that. that's a great answer. And I think my, people who listen to this podcast will definitely resonate with that. I love you quote, um, you quote Parker Palmer, who I love, like I, you and I need to compare bookshelves because I'm sure we'd have a big overlap. But, um, you know, Palmer talks about this idea of this, the gravitas that comes in the second half of life and mm. how we can find a certain okayness. And I'm wondering if you could reflect either on your own journey or even on people you've worked with as they've started to move into this better relationship with um digital technology and with just just the digital world and the, the digital story you know kind of the story mm. that it tries to tell us if if you feel that people can experience more of that okayness like if they can really whether it's you know palmer or Jung or richard Rohr talks about the second half of life like can do you see people being able to move into that more contented more okay life um, once they begin to embody these practices yeah, look, I just see our culture as one that is leading and living from the outside in. Yeah. You know, we look shiny on the outside and, and we're working, we're doing the right things and we're creating the right habits. But there is this deep, anxious fear that drives us, this, this lack of inner peace, uh, this uh, lack of what I would call deep rest right. at a soul level. And this incredible yearning for space, which is why I have a business built around making space. And, uh, and so I suppose the whole, the premise really of what I write about is that uh, space has always been hard. It's always been hard to be quiet and to examine the inner life, because when we do, we have to face our own demons, our own fears. Uh, and, and in order to face our, and then by facing our own fears and our own worries and, and examining the data in our life uh, and, and for me, giving it to God and, and getting revelation back again, you know, there's this sense where you end up knowing who you are and knowing your moral convictions and knowing the calling that you have on your life so that that can shape your life. So you live from the inside out from a place of peace and rest rather than exhaustion and anxiety. But, but that's always been the case. But nowadays we have this extra layer where we actually have no space. I mean, there was this fascinating research study by the university of Virginia, where um, Americans were given six to 15 minutes alone by themselves without any distraction. And they chose to give themselves painful electric shocks rather than sit and ideate (laughs) without a screen. And and so we we have trained ourselves to so habitually fill our lives with information and distraction that we don't even have the ability to wrestle with silence and to move through that inner journey that leads to the mature spiritual life and the second mountain, as we kind of might allude to. And so uh, we need to unplug as a habit first and then create those spaces where we are both creating connection with community, which changes us and connection with ourselves, which is silence and solitude. And uh, in order to then 
have that deep sense of knowing who we are and how to live. And it's not impossible and it starts by making space, but uh, my passion is to take people on that journey so that they can actually live a deeply healthy inside out life that uh, is shaped by their soul and their spirit rather than by the script around them. I, I hope yeah. that makes sense. Um, it does. It does. And I think that's a beautiful thought to end on. I'm excited to, to uh, have people hear you and hear what you've shared. Um, how can they find you? On What's the best way to connect with you on the internet? Or on, yeah, look, I'd love, yeah, I'd love people to reach out. I'm on spacemakers.com.au. You can find my email address. Uh, I've got uh, free information about how to create a digital Sabbath if those kind of ideas are useful. Uh, we also run training all around the world. I have a trainer in Canada, but I also train for the US time zone in productivity stuff like how to get your inbox nice. to zero yeah. but also stuff like how to actually make space and build digital resilience in your life we have a bunch of half day online courses so I'd, I'd love people to look at what i do and connect and and of course i'd love you to buy my book uh, it's, yeah, it's yeah. everywhere it, uh, it, it won it won it's not a religious book it won the australian business book of the year award last year for personal development so that you'll find it everywhere um, but if you want to make a bit more space i'd love for you to just yeah, open the book and go through that journey from your mind to your heart to your habits and uh, see where it leads you. Awesome. Daniel C., thank you so much. This was really, really great. No, thanks so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it, Will. All right, cheers. And that's a wrap for today. Please follow me on social. You can find me at Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at TheWillSampson. Please hit the subscribe button below to be notified of the latest episodes. Thanks, everyone. And I will see you next time on the Revolution of Interdependence podcast.